Hey, uh, we are wrapping up uh, a series that we've called uh, Grateful, and if you've been uh, here for it, uh, you get the kind of the context and what we've been uh, saying to each other is, if we're not careful, you and I see the people in our lives, the moments of our lives, the events of our lives, kind of, kind of as singular, instantaneous uh, things. And, and it's not until you and I sometimes pull back and, and see it in a bigger perspective to suddenly realize, hey, that, that person who bothered me so deeply, that, that moment that I thought in the, in the instant was a setback, or maybe at the moment you knew it was something really cool, was actually God blessing me. It was God forming me to be who I needed to be and to teach me to be more like Jesus. And, and if I saw it in context, if I, if I actually saw how all those things are woven together in my life, I would actually be grateful for them. Even though in the moment they happened, in the instant when that person said that thing to me, I didn't like it very much. But now that I look back, I need to be deeply, deeply grateful for that uh, in my life. We, we started off and, and we just talked about this incredible thing called the church and, and just how God has placed this in our lives to teach us and prepare us and hopefully to actually help us know things before we even have to ask the question about how to live our lives and what to do. And, and in those moments when I'm struggling, kind of like uh, the testimony to have someone in our life like Tony that, that says, hey, look, I, I get it, and you stumbled, but you can make it. And to have that resource of relationship to move forward with. And then we talked about Jesus and, and the idea that he does for us on that cross what you and I could never have done for ourselves. That we couldn't have gone to church enough, we couldn't have been religious enough, that, that what he accomplished in forgiving our sins, we could not have done. And, and if we really, really let that sink in, and if we really, really understood it for its depth, we would be so grateful for Jesus that we'd spend our entire lives living for him out of gratitude for him. And then we talked uh, last week about this idea of uh, things that happen in our life, sometimes things that we, at the very onset, we go, wow, that's amazing, and it's clearly the blessing of God, but we talked more about sometimes things that happen in our life that we thought were failure. We thought they were setbacks in our lives. We thought they, thought they were deep, harmful injustices that happened, and yet now we look back and go, wow, it was wrong, and, it, and that person did harm, but, but the reality is God used that in my life. It was like heat and pressure and time to form me to be more like Jesus, even in the midst of that moment. And so even though I'm not saying it was right or I'm not saying I like it, I am grateful for it because it made me more like Jesus. And today we're going to talk about the people that God has placed in our lives. Uh, divine appointments, people that God has kind of assigned around us that maybe even in the moment when they're there we go, why in the world did God give me that cousin? You know, what, how in the world did I end up with them for a supervisor? And in the moment, you and I go, well, I, boy, I, and yet, is it possible that they are the very hand of God, that God has strategically placed individuals in our lives to move our lives forward in Christ? And if we knew that, if we understood that, we would be grateful, even for some of the toughest uh, individuals within our lives. I remember I was a sophomore in high school, and uh, this little junior high kid by the name Owen uh, started following me around. I mean, everywhere you went, it was kind of creepy. You'd, you'd be talking to someone, you'd look over your shoulder, Owen would be over there, you know. And, and 
if you remember, high, I mean, high school, you, the last thing you wanted was a little junior higher uh, following you around. You know, I'm trying to talk to girls, and there's Owen. And so I finally, I went to my youth pastor, Wayne, and I said, look, Wayne, this is, this is just, it's kind of creepy and weird, and it, it, it's really, really irritating. You know, how do I tell this kid to get lost? And Wayne smiled and looked at me, and he said, I'm a grandpa. I said, What? He says, I'm a grandpa. He says, I- I've been investing in your life, and now God has given you someone to invest in their life. You know, it was interesting because uh, in that moment, something kind of clicked in my heart, and I thought, wow, uh, there's some truth to that. I mean, Wayne has just poured himself into me. Wayne has spent incredible amounts of time for me. And truth is, I'm, I'm grateful for what Wayne has done. And, and maybe out of that gratitude, maybe I should spend some time with this guy. It's interesting because uh, as time went by, Owen and I ended up being the best of friends. One of the best relationships of my entire life was that creepy little junior high guy <laughs> who followed me around. So here, here's what we're just going to try to explore today and, and, and ask is, is it possible that there are people placed in proximity in your life that really are divine appointments, divine assignments, that God has placed them there? And even though in the moment they may have been irritating, and may, maybe in the moment you may not have understood, or maybe you did, maybe in the moment you said, wow, this person is God's hand in my life. But what does it mean to stop and be grateful for that? To say, I, I learned so much, I saw so much in you, and God used you to form me and I'm grateful for the people God's put in my life. If you have your Bibles today, grab with me because we're going to go through a moment that's uh, very similar. It's Ruth uh, chapter 1, and if you're not real familiar, uh, we're going to go to the front of our Bibles today. It's an Old Testament uh, story in an Old Testament book, Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then this book of Ruth. It's interesting because all through Scripture, you get this story playing out over and over again, where people invest in other people's lives, where people are forever changed, forever affected because of a life that's in proximity to them. Matter of fact, maybe an example that you would know is, is the life of Timothy. Here's a young man uh, who ends up being the leader of the church in Ephesus, probably the most successful, most God-fearing church, most prominent church of all the first century. And yet Timothy was mentored and taken care of and trained in ministry by a guy by the name of Paul. And, and Paul probably maybe maybe the most fantastic Christian of all time, a, a guy who literally took the gospel and spread it almost single-handedly across the then-known world, and yet you get that Paul didn't start out alone, that Paul actually was taken under the wing of a guy by the name of Barnabas, that when Paul had first converted because he'd been a guy who was killing Christians at the time, none of the disciples wanted to have anything to do with Paul. They had ostracized the guy. And, and there was one guy by the name of Barnabas who said, no, 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 there's something special about him, and he's worth the risk. And Barnabas took Paul under his wing. This story happens over and over again in Scripture, and it happens in this story of a widow uh, by the name of Naomi who is going to have unbelievable influence in the life of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. So it's the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Let me give you a little bit of background as uh, we begin to unpack this. Uh, Ruth uh, and her husband Elimelech uh, are living in Israel. They're Jews, but a famine comes, and uh, they decide in that moment of 
economic downturn, absolute uh, struggle to move to Moab and uh, because things are going better there. Now, here's what you need to know. God would have probably said, don't do that. Don't go live with a foreign people. Stay where I have you. And it's interesting that you and I, when we get into economic struggle, sometimes make real knee-jerk decisions. And I just want to encourage you today, if nothing else, sometimes some of us, and I know where some of us are struggling right now financially, if you and I aren't careful, I think it's possible for you and I to worry so much about the next mortgage payment that we may forget about the people assignments that God has placed in our life. And we may miss the very opportunity that we're talking about here today. Economy has the ability to do that to us. So Naomi and Elimelech, they, they moved to, to Moab with their two sons. Unfortunately, not too long after they're there, her husband Elimelech dies. Her two sons end up getting married, but they get married to Moabite women. And then if, if that weren't hard enough in the story, both her sons die. Naomi uh, hears that things are better back in Israel and uh, she decides to go home to her people. Now, here's what you need to understand within the culture in those days, and that is that when you married somebody, especially as a woman, you not only married the man, you married his family. So as Naomi makes the decision to go back to Israel, both of her daughter-in-laws feel obligated to go with her and to try to take care of her the way that her sons would have taken care of her if they had still been alive. And so as Naomi makes this decision to go back, here come her two uh, daughters-in-laws. One, one is Orpah, and the other one is Ruth. And as they're walking along uh, the trail, Ruth begins to say to herself, look, the, these, these gals are going to be fish out of water back in my country. There's no reason for them to feel this obligation to do this. And so she turns to her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and says, look, don't feel obligated. Just, just go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Go back to what you're familiar with. Because here's the deal. If you come with me, you, you got to come with me because you really want to come with me. Don't come out of some weird sense of obligation because, truth be told, it's going to be harder for you with me than it's going to be for you if you go back to your own people. You can find a husband. Just, just do that. You, you don't have to come. Matter of fact, here's the passage. Here's uh, part of that discussion. It's Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 15. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Look, said Naomi, uh, your sister-in-law, Orpah, uh, is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you and to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and, where, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even, death if, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. How does that response happen? I mean, and they didn't, I mean, Ruth's saying, look, I'm, I'm ready to leave all that behind. I, my heart, Naomi, is go with you. And, and the best you and I can get is that in that moment, something has occurred between these two women just simply by doing life together. 
just simply by being side by side. And Ruth is seeing something in Naomi that she's jealous of and she wants and she wants to emulate in her life, even to the point she says, I'm thinking about this, your God will be my God. And, and, and something of Naomi has begun to rub off on Ruth and she wants more. Is it possible? Is it possible that sometimes God places within your life and my life people simply with the intent, not because they were teaching and not because they were just, just by proximity, just by being near us, and something was supposed to rub off on us? And that that person, whether at the time maybe they were bothersome or irritating, or maybe at the time we knew they were a blessing, but that person was placed by the very hand of God in proximity to you and me that something of them would rub off on us. Maybe this is a friend. <laughs> it's a neighbor. It's, it's a coworker at work, and, 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 and you thought it was just chance that they were in the cubicle next to you. It's your spouse. Have you, figured, have you figured out you can't be married and not a little bit of them rub off on you? This could be a parent. And I know, I know, I know some of you are going to go, well, and then you don't get it. My parents were horrible and my parents were… No, 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 no. Maybe, maybe God put them there so you would see the few good things they did. Or, or maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe God said, I'm going to give you an example so that you would say, I'll never do it that way. that people have been placed in your life were placed there by the hand of God to rub off on you. And if you and I understood that, if you and I recognized that, we'd be grateful for those people in our lives. I'm nine years old, and uh, my uncle, uh, Marty, owned a lawn service. And uh, he would invite, he invited me from the time I was nine, uh, to come work for him in the summer. So school get out, I'd go work for Uncle Marty. So stop and think about this. Arizona, we're out mowing lawns in the summer. So you're talking 107, 108, 100. I, I, remember, I remember 120 degree days we were out there mowing lawns. And, and, and my job as a nine-year-old, uh, we would pull up the, the van uh, to the yard, uh, and I was supposed to go back pull the lawnmower out of the back of the van. And you got to remember, these aren't sissy little, you know, Sears lawnmower. These are commercial-grade lawnmowers, so heavy cast lawnmowers, sometimes oversized Briggs & Stratton engine, big old lawnmowers, and pull it down and check the oil, had to make sure it was fueled up with gas. And then my assignment was to take that mower and run, run across the front yard and the backyard. And my job was to get the entire yard mowed before my Uncle Marty could edge the yard and blow the sidewalks. That's what I did. Sometimes 12, 13, 14 yards a day, all summer long. I, I remember one moment in particular, I, uh, we'd been uh, working on a, a yard, and I had a, a bag of uh, grass clippings uh, over my back. I'm, I'm carrying them to the trash can. And, and as, as I passed by my uncle, my uncle began to share with me how he felt about me carrying uh, the trash clippings. Things came out of my Uncle Marty's mouth that I had never heard before. Uh, a sailor would have blushed. <laughs> After about four minutes of just... <laughs> I realized he was saying, uh, why didn't you pick up the rake? 
He was going, hey, you, you got an, an empty hand there. You had the grass over. A, you walked right by a rake. You could have picked that rake up and you saved yourself a trip. <laughs> can, can I tell you at the time I wasn't real excited about Uncle Marty? <laughs> I can tell you there was more than one summer I thought about quitting. Uncle Marty was a blessing of God to me. And, and despite his failings and despite his faults, and praise God, today he's following God in a, a marvelous way. But back then, and Eddie was God's hand to me. And can I tell you that, that if nothing else, I, I learned a good work ethic with Uncle Marty. See, I, I'm, I'm a fairly white-collar guy who thinks real blue-collar when it comes to work. I watched my Uncle Marty love my Aunt Peggy. I, I, I got firsthand experience to see what it was like to have a man give his whole heart to his wife. Some of Uncle Marty rubbed off on me. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I am forever thankful for Uncle Marty. What about you? Have somebody that God placed in your life, placed in proximity to you, with the very intent that something of them would rub off on you, good or bad. Don't ever do this or here's how. And now that you look back and now you go, you go oh my goodness, wow. They were the very blessing of God to me. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful God placed him in my life. That's Naomi to Ruth. It's interesting, they, uh, they go back uh, to Israel. Uh, Naomi has no idea that God is using her right now. And I, it's just kind of a sub-thought, but I think intriguing for you and me. Uh, she really believes God has abandoned her. She believes that God has left her out of she went off to Moab. She had a husband. She had two sons. She's coming back, and she's a widow and has lost both her boys. Matter of fact, read real quick to you verse 20. Uh, here's what it says. Uh, she says this to the women when she comes back. They're all celebrating her return. They say, she says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. <laughs> Mara means bitter. She said, don't call me Naomi, she told them, but call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi has no idea what God is about to do by having placed her in the life of Ruth and that by blessing Ruth, God is going to bless her. They get back, and they're trying to make their way. And you've got to understand, there's, there, there's no social security. There's no welfare system uh, going on in that moment. And so you find yourself a widow with your widowed daughter-in-law. How do you make ends meet? And what the Bible had set up and what uh, the men of Israel were obligated to do is that when they harvested their fields, the Bible said, look, don't, don't harvest the corners. 
uh, turn and, and, and round off as you harvest and leave the corners of the fields so that the homeless and the widows and the orphans can go and they can glean out of the corners of your field, and that's how they're supposed to be taken care of. So Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, look, uh, it's the time of harvest. You need to go out and, 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 and harvest uh, in the corners. And the first field that Ruth goes to is the field of Boaz. Just so happens Boaz is a relative. And as she's uh, harvesting there, Boaz happens to ride up uh, on a horse, and he says to his men, hey, you know, who is, who is that over there uh, harvesting in the corners? And they say, that's, that's Ruth. And he had heard about her. He knew that her and Naomi were back, and he went over and began to talk to her and, and uh, said, hey, just feel free to do this and to, and to harvest all you want. He actually invites her to lunch and spend some time, which would have been fairly unheard of in the culture and in the day. And then after lunch, he goes to his men and he says, look, even if she begins to get up and harvest in the center of the field, don't rebuke her. Matter of fact, as you're harvesting, I want you to accidentally drop some of the harvest on the ground so that she can come behind and pick up. She goes home that night, and she's, she's, got, she's got an unbelievably big bag of grain as she goes back uh, to her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi. And she does this day after day, week after week, and Naomi begins to sense that something's happening here. There, there's more than just harvesting happening in this field. We get to the passage. It's Ruth uh, chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided. Now Boaz with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. So here, here's what's happening. Naomi's going, no, 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 no. I've seen the looks. I, he's not going to let just anybody harvest that way. And she begins to realize there's something going on, and she begins to see. You ready for this? She begins to see a future for Ruth that Ruth hasn't even caught on to yet. Ruth has not even imagined it yet. But Naomi sees it for her. Ever had a person like that in your life? Someone who saw something in you that nobody, maybe you didn't even see it in yourself. And they began to push you to do something, and at the time you thought, I, I can't get up in front of people and speak. I, can't, I could never do this. I, that, and, and yet they saw something in you that maybe you didn't. You got a promotion, and everybody in the office went, how in the world did they get that? Because they saw something in you. They, they saw an ability, they saw a skill that maybe, maybe you, you had completely overlooked. And their prodding, their pushing, their encouragement changed the trajectory of your life because they believed in you when no one else saw it in you. I told, I told you earlier a little bit about Wayne, and he was my youth pastor when I was a kid. And I, I, I don't know I've ever seen a guy like Wayne. We, he was so dynamic, so charismatic. We had, we had kids coming to our youth group just to be around Wayne 
They, they didn't care about the Bible. They didn't care about God. They just wanted to be around this guy. And the cool thing about Wayne was that eventually he'd get to the story of Jesus. And we, we, had, we had incredible stories of high school kids coming to the Lord. Matter of fact, this is, this is back in the 70s, and so you've got to think the whole hippie thing going on. And uh, we, we, in our youth group, we were seeing the guys who were selling drugs on the high school campus come to our youth group and ask Jesus in their heart. So we had, we had one of the main drug sellers at Tempe High. We, we had one of the guys who was selling like crazy at Marcos Deniza. And, and they came to our youth group. They, they asked Jesus in their heart. And now they're going to their toilet and they're dropping their stash and, and flushing it in the name of God. Amen. And it was interesting, the little church we were in was just so freaked out because these long-haired, hippie, drug-dealing kids were coming into church, and they eventually went to Wayne and said, Wayne, you got to stop doing that. You know what was interesting in the moment? Wayne, Wayne had all these campus celebrities, I mean, big guys, on the drug dealers on campus, incredible stories about Jesus, right? I mean, I was selling drugs, and now I... And instead of spending and investing his time with them, he invested tons of time in me. I, I, I was just the nobody. I mean, I was just the, I, I, if I had dropped out of school at McClintock High School, nobody would have noticed. I was the kid who went to class, sat in the middle of the room. You know, only the teacher knew when I was absent. And yet Wayne spent hours I can't tell you how, how many cups of coffee we drank at Coco's, just pouring over Scripture, talking theology together. My whole plan in my life had been to be a doctor, and I, I can remember thinking to myself, if, if I could be part of changing lives the way that Wayne changes lives for eternity… that'd be worth spending my life on. And I don't, guys, I don't know what it was. Wayne saw something in me that I had no idea. I didn't see in myself. I was called to ministry while Wayne was my youth pastor. When I got off to Bible college, I spent the first two years of Bible college bored because Wayne had poured so much Bible and so much theology into me, I could have taught the class. And I am grateful for Wayne. He was God's appointment in my life. Got anybody like that? <laughs> got, got anybody who has spoken into you and seen something in you and pushed you to places of discomfort and encouraged you to go and do things that looked risky and out of the box, promoted you when nobody understood? Because they saw something in you. And is it possible that they were the hand of God? And that in retrospect, you and I looking back should be deeply, deeply grateful for the people who saw something in us. It's interesting what uh, Ruth tells, uh, or Naomi tells Ruth to do next. It's back in chapter 3. Here it is. Starting verse 2 again, it says, Now Boaz, 
with whose women you have worked is a close relative of ours. Now, here's why that's an important thing for her to say. In that culture, now we're getting back to what do you do with widows and what do you, how do you take care of them? In that culture and in that time, it was an obligation of a near kinsman to marry the widow, to take her into her house. That's how she would be cared for. Boaz is a near kinsman. Here's the dilemma. He's two back. There's somebody ahead of him who has the greater responsibility to marry Ruth before Boaz. And yet there's something going on between Ruth and Boaz. Okay? So, here we go. Now, Boaz, with whom women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And you go, what? (laughs) I've heard advice, but I, you know. It's interesting, Ruth's response to verse 5, I'll do whatever you say. Because I think she's about half as taken back as you and I are. Here, here's the deal. Hmm. R- Naomi is shrewd. Naomi, Naomi, is, Naomi is absolutely directing Ruth in this moment in, in a culture that she would have never understood any better than you and I just understood this advice. Let me, let me unpack it for you for a second. It's Boaz's obligation to marry Ruth, but he's second in line. He's interested in Ruth. Ruth is interested in him, but there's somebody ahead of him. And Boaz is a guy of such deep character, he's not going to jump ahead. So Boaz has been pausing. He's been hesitating on marrying Ruth to see what the nearer kinsman is going to do. And and Naomi looks at him and says, he's never going to get this done. He's never going to get around to it. He's going to sit and pause and pause and pause and pause. He needs some help. So he sends Ruth to go at night when Boaz is asleep and lay down at his feet so that, you ready for this? In the morning, he'll wake up, see Ruth there, but guess who else will see Ruth there? Everybody. And in a small town, and you find a woman and a man, guess what the the rest of the story, guess what everybody's going to believe in that moment? And what he's, she's encouraging Ruth, says, look, look we're going to risk like crazy, because here's the deal. No matter how many times you deny it, everybody's going to believe that something happened with you and Boaz. But here's the in- ingeniousness of it. Boaz is going to have to get off his duff and do something. And Naomi is counting on Boaz being a man of character that he will marry Ruth and make an honest woman of her. Ruth goes out, lays down at his feet. He happens to rustle in the night, kicks something, looks down, and there's Ruth. He goes, what? What are you doing? And then it clicks. Uh. And he says to Ruth, I love this. He says to Ruth, Ruth, look, you're a gal of a great reputation. You You don't need to do this. Go back home. I'll marry you. I'll marry you. And Naomi gets him to move. Here's the deal. Ruth would have never known that. There are people in your life who know 
things that you and I need to know. And God has strategically placed them in proximity to you that you and I would learn from them. That they would have the opportunity to speak into our lives and help move us along quicker, faster, further than we ever could have gone. I'm a young man in ministry, 20-something, which is just code for I know every answer because I'm pretty sure I know every answer. God sticks me in proximity to a man, Pastor George Bedlian. And some of you guys know Pastor George. He served here for a while at this church. And George Bedlian ended up being my supervisor, but more than that, he ended up being my friend and my mentor. And, and although God had not equipped George with some of the things that he would need if he was ever going to be a senior pastor of a church, that guy had so much experience, so much life experience. And this guy poured it in to me. I, I look at decisions I make all the time in leading Cornerstone and go, that George taught me that. George taught me that. I remember uh, fairly early on, I'm fairly young, and George calls me into his office and he says, uh, hey, there's two men and they're uh, griping about the youth ministry. And I thought, oh, great. I, I'm this young whippersnapper. They're all twice my age. I, I know who wins this argument. I'm, I'm coming out of here bad. And we get, and see, these guys are coming. We're going to have two appointments and we'll see. And the first guy comes in and, I mean, he is, he's fit to be tied. I mean, he's, and he's going, you guys, and you're just blowing it, and it's the most horrible youth ministry I've ever seen, and, 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 and you just don't even get it, and you're horrible, and you, this church is just a mess. And about halfway through the conversation, I watched George say, whoa, 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 whoa. And he reached over and he grabbed the man on the arm, and he said, let's pray. And as we bowed our heads, George began to squeeze his arm. And then he prayed what I call the wicked, wicked man prayer. <laughs> he said, dear God, please don't kill this wicked, wicked man as he leaves the church. And then he says, amen. And he gets up, and the man goes, whoa, I, I wasn't planning. He goes, no, no, you need to leave, and walked him out. <laughs> I went, this is good. This is, this is fun. Matter of fact, if I'm lucky, George will let me pray the wicked, wicked man prayer. Next guy. Next man comes walking in. And he, he starts out. He goes, look, I, I just think we could do this better. I just think there's an opportunity to disciple our kids more, and I don't think we're taking advantage of it. I don't think we're emphasizing it enough. And I, 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 just, I just think we're missing an opportunity with our students. And I just wish we would... Make this more important. Fifteen minutes later, he had the man volunteering to serve in my program with me leading him. And we got done, and the man left, and I went, George, what was that? The first guy was wicked, wicked man prayer. This guy you got serving on my team. He said, Lynn, didn't you hear the difference in the two men? And I said, No. He said, the first guy came in and he said, you guys, and you're just a bunch of, and this stinking church. He said, you, you, you get, that man's heart was not with us. 
He was going to spend the rest of his life standing on the sideline throwing rocks. He was never going to be happy here. The best thing I could have done for him was the wicked, wicked man prayer. Second guy, did you hear what he said? I wish we, I think we could do better discipling these kids. I just wish we would meet. You get his heart was here. I knew I could win that guy to come serve because he loves us. How long do you think it would have taken me to figure that out? How many bad appointments, how many wicked, wicked man prayers before I would have realized the difference in the two men? There are people in your life who know what you need to know. And if you would listen, and maybe you already have, and your life has been forever, forever changed. And you and I should be grateful. It's interesting what uh, happens next. Go with me to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth ends up married to Boaz, and she has a child. Here it is, Ruth chapter 4, verse 14. This is right after the child's born. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord this day, has not left, the Lord has not left you without a guardian redeemer. So here, ready for this? In the culture, when the widow had her first child, that child was considered an heir to the dead husband. So now Naomi has gotten a grandson in her line. Isn't that interesting? The very woman who blessed Ruth has been blessed for blessing. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Now get this, got to follow the rest of it, okay? So not only has, has Naomi been redeemed in the moment and she has a grandchild, but watch what happens next. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi ends up being the great-grandmother of King David. Through... <laughs> through blessing the life of a little Moabite girl. Isn't that remarkable? And by being in the line of David, guess who else is in that line later on? Jesus. Jesus. So here's what I'm going to ask. Is it possible? Is it possible, is it probable that God has placed people in your life specifically, so they would rub off on you, so, so, that, so that they would see things in you and encourage you and push you to things in your life that you would have never done on your own, so that they would speak into you and help you grow in ways that you never would have grown, and that they literally were the hand of God for you. And if you and I knew that, we'd be grateful. I, I'm going to guess this. 
I'm going to guess that as we talk this morning, someone's face has come to mind for you. And here's what I want to do. I want to challenge you and I to do two things today, okay? I want to challenge us first just to set to, at this moment to stop and just say, hey, God, thank you for that person. Thank you for my Wayne. Thank you for my Pastor George. Thank you for my Uncle Marty, for my Naomi. I just want to thank you because I now realize they were God's hand, your hand in my life. So let's just do that real quick. Let's just bow our heads right where we're at. I want to give you a moment for you to simply say, God, I see it now, and I'm grateful for this person you placed in my life. Just take a moment and pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for Uncle Marty. And in the midst of all of his gruffness, teaching me how to work and love my wife. And thank you for Wayne igniting a hunger in me for ministry. And thank you for George who invested his life in me. And I am grateful because I know now they were your hand. They were your goodness to me. They were divine appointments meant to bless my life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the second thing I want to challenge you to. Would you call? When you leave this place, when you get ready to go, would, would you just get on the phone and say, hey, it's interesting, we were at church today and the pastor was talking about people in our lives that have blessed us that maybe were God's appointment in our lives. And I just, I don't know that I've ever said enough of this. I'm grateful for you. Maybe it's a text. Maybe it's a card. You're right. I don't know. But what if, what if they were Naomi and, and thought that God had turned their back and that there was no more hope and had no idea how deeply they'd impacted you? It'd be great for them to hear how grateful you are. So as we leave, at least one that you and I would reach out to and just say thank you for what you've meant in my life. Dude, don't leave. Don't leave yet. Because um, we have to talk about your bedazzled t-shirts for just a second. Um, I kid, I kid. No, but in light of your message, man, I, uh, Lynn had no idea I was doing this. and I didn't know I was doing this either. This is literally off the cuff of a bedazzled sweater. Um, but uh, nine years ago, some of you haven't been around that long um, here at Cornerstone along the journey here, but nine years ago, uh, I, I got hired here um, and sort of fell into ministry. Uh, you may not know this about my story, but I was pursuing fire, firefighting as a, as a career and as a vocation and um, thought that's what God would have for me. And through a whole series of events, I finished the fire academy, was about to go to paramedic school and sort of ended up here at Cornerstone. Um, really not my plans, but, but God's. And, um, and uh, nine years later, um, I just wanted to honor Lynn in, in front of the church, just to let you know I, I'm so grateful because I don't think I ever knew that this is what I'd be doing for a career. Um, and uh, 
some, through a series of events that happened, I was here on a year contract, no strings attached, and I think you probably did that with the wisdom from Pastor George with a guy like me. Um, but it, it ended up, I was kind of at the end of that year, and I uh, wasn't sure where I was going or where I was heading and how that would all look out, but I was pretty sure I was going to take the no strings attached into the deal and move back to California, where I'm from. But uh, uh, through a series of events and Tom's first wife, Tom's playing keyboards back there. Some of you don't know, he was our first, our, not our first, but one of our early worship pastors here and was the worship pastor when I first came on staff. But um, Tom's wife had passed in that first year that I was here. And so there was an, a spot open here. And uh, I remember you guys launched a formal search for a worship pastor. And about a month in, uh, Lynn and the team came to me and said, I, I, uh, I think this, I think you could do it. We think you're our guy. And and they believed in a young guy um, that ended up through the years wearing all different colored jeans and growing <laughs> beards and nine different haircuts over the years. And, uh, and you believed in me. And so I stand on the shoulders of, uh, as Isaac Newton said, of, of Lynn, just being able to see somebody like me um, and having then released me over the last nine years to influence on the national level, um, just things I could have never dreamed up or imagined. So I just wanted to honor you and say thank you for uh, just giving me the opportunity to uh, do things I never saw myself doing. So I just want to honor you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.